You're listening to Talkback Gardening with Deb Tribe and John Lamb at the Royal Adelaide Show on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Good morning. Happy Saturday, gardeners. Good morning, John Lamb. Good morning, Deb. Good morning, gardeners. And it's a good day for a show. It sure is. We are broadcasting live from the ABC stage at the Jubilee Pavilion of the Royal Adelaide Show. The last broadcast that ABC Radio Adelaide is doing for this 2022 Royal Adelaide Show. But, boy, we've got lots of guests to speak to in the next hour, haven't we, John? It's surprising, the diversity that there is here and and just finding the people that are putting on the displays and talking to them, what you can learn from those people is is nobody's business. That's right. And, you know, it doesn't matter which stand you go to in the horticultural section. There are experts there. I saw so many people getting advice at the orchid stall. You know, these are the growers. These are the people that know their stuff, and they are very happy to share their experiences with you. And we can't cover every, every display, and I think people would like to give the little opportunity to talk about uh, what they've got on the show but uh, we can't cover everybody but we try and pick out what may be of particular interest in this particular season. Yes and this show was interesting because the Australian the Botanic Gardens of Adelaide has a display this year. Now I don't know if it's the first time ever or the first time in a long time. They used to be here but but then somebody decided they wouldn't be here. But here they are. They're back again. Fabulous. Now, we're <laughs> going to speak to Matt Coulter. He comes on regularly to talk about propagation on Talkback Gardening. I'm looking forward to that. And young Tate Hancocks, who is uh, an expert with old tools, and he's going to look at the problematic <laughs> secateurs that some of us have to deal with. And he is a budding researcher, and we might just talk a little bit about uh, where we might see Tate in the future, maybe in Kew over in London. Oh, really? Because he's studying a PhD, isn't he? He's just finished. Oh. He's, in fact, he's, <laughs> he's just entered it, so let's hope that uh, he ends up with his thesis. Okay, so he's not Dr Tate yet. Not yet. We'll, not yet. We'll, well, I won't get in too early with that. And of course, a living show legend of Walter Duncan. He has an incredible history here with the Royal uh, Adelaide show and we're going to end the talk back gardening having a chat to him and he's such a character isn't he? He's always got something wise to say and I think uh, we might just probe him a little bit and take a look at the fact that I think the people putting on the displays are changing. The old Methuselahs like me are fading away and they're being replaced by younger generations. Are they in good hands? I won't be calling you Methuselah anytime soon, John. Uh, but uh, we did say a big thank you earlier to Brett Draper who has put the display here together for the ABC stage and does so much work for the horticultural display. And John Schutz, chair of the Horticultural Committee, uh, reminds us, as we said last week, that there's a huge team of hard-working and experienced people that do hard work all year round to put the horticultural display together and especially around showtime. So, of course, our thanks to the Horticultural uh, Committee and all of the dedicated volunteers. And, of course, that goes also for everybody that volunteers for the show. There are thousands of them. We've got all of the judges in the cookery section. So many people make this event so special for all of us and it's so lovely to have it back again. It's always very interesting walking through before the show opens and just seeing everybody beavering away. But as you mentioned, the number of people that give up their time quite freely Mm. to be involved, either as stewards, as judges or putting on a demonstration, it's uh, very, very nice to see. 
Matt Coulter is the horticultural curator at the Adelaide Botanic Gardens and he's been one of the many that have been judging and acting as a, a, a steward as well. Good morning, Matt. Uh, what, you, do you judge? Do you steward? What, what are your... Good morning, John. Good morning, Deb. I actually uh, judge the camellias. I've uh, been doing that for the past uh, five years, except for the two years of COVID. But, yeah, this is my third year doing it. So, yeah, judging on the Tuesday and the Friday for the, the camellia blooms, which were actually magnificent this year. You look at the flowers and you think, why aren't my flowers, my, my camellias flowering like that? But uh, it takes a bit of do doing. Yeah, it does. I mean, you've got to do things like this budding so you can actually get good-sized flowers. I mean, you have to... Um, the weather actually plays a big part as well because if you get a lot of rain and wind, that actually can damage the flowers. So trying to pick the, the flowers that are going to win the prizes is quite a difficult process and I take my hat off to the people that have done it this year. Absolutely. The Adelaide Botanic Gardens have back here in terms of putting on a display and uh, they selected the uh, corpse flower plant. Why that particular plant? As you said, John, we haven't been at the show for many years and we were asked if we were going to have a display of one plant, what that plant would be. And it was a very easy decision for me because, as people know, I've been involved with the, the corpse flower for about 15 years now. I'm starting it off, getting it growing in the nursery, working out how to propagate it and to flower. We've actually flowered it 11 times now, which is wow. quite an incredible feat. And we've actually been able to amass probably the largest collection of that species in the world in one site now, which we're very proud of. And I think we can say congratulations to you for your involvement in, uh, in working out the propagation <laughs> of that particular plant. OK, so it grows into a fairly large plant, mm -hmm. uh, probably too big for the average garden. Um, are there corpse flower plants that home gardeners can grow? Yes, John, there's more than 100 species of the Morphophallus around the world, and there's actually a few that actually occur in Australia, in the northern part of Australia. But there are actually some that occur in cool climates in places like China. So the Morphophallus konjac, which is, if anyone knows the konjac noodles, it's actually made from this plant, um, and also Morphophallus albus. They can be quite successfully grown in people's gardens here in Adelaide. And also people may know of the Trunkunculus vulgaris. Oh, which, yes. <laughs> yeah, which is, it has a very strong aroma as well. <laughs> so that one grows very successfully in South Australia. And there is also another one from the Canary Islands, Trunkunculus canariensis, which you can see in botanic gardens. And actually has a sweet perfume, that one. And do they all have... Oh, OK, some have a sweet one. But do most of them have a, a fairly uh, distinctive odour? <laughs> yeah, so the majority of them have that, that, that carrion-type smell. So... It's all related to the pollinator, so whatever pollinates that plant. So it actually has a smell of carrion that the flies actually are brought to the flower to bring the pollen to that flower. The thing with the flower, it can't pollinate itself. It's got this flower, but it needs to get pollen from another flower. So it actually tricks the insect to think that's a dead animal, so it brings the pollen from another flower, and it helps pollinate that plant. Clever. And the, re the reason this plant is so important is actually endangered in the wild now. It only occurs in Sumatra, the only place in the world it occurs. And since the time I've worked on it, it's gone from being vulnerable to actually being endangered now. So it's, in a, it's a real risk. And can it be pollinated by the common old blowfly, or does it have to have a, a special fly? No, it can be pollinated by the blowfly. Actually, the first time it was actually found was in the private life of plants. So David Attenborough actually viewed it in the wild, and it was a little sweat bee, a tiny little bee that looks like a fly. And then in one night that it actually flowers, 
there would be literally thousands of insects on it. And actually, the way that it actually tracks the insects to the flower, it actually pulses. So it pushes the smell out away from the plant to actually to bring the insect to it. Quite a remarkable plant. There are so many stories to tell about it. And with our display here, we've got a whole lot of new interp that we've actually developed in the last 12 months. So it's, it's quite a complex plant to actually understand. And we've got some really good interp to actually explain how the plant grows. Because what you see there, it looks like a tree, is actually classified as one single leaf. And that's all annual. So what you see above the soil, and they can get anywhere to four to five metres tall, that's all an annual event. And then it will die, and then the tuber will get larger. And the largest tuber ever recorded was at 150 kilos. <laughs> wow! <laughs> no wonder uh, you had a few difficulties uh, trying to sort out how to propagate it with a strange growth like that. Mm -hmm. Let's move from uh, the corpse flower plant and take a look at uh, the main, uh, the feature plant for the show, for the horticultural displays, were cacti and succulents. And it's certainly quite spectacular looking at how they've been put together. But in terms of growing, from a home gardening point of view, how easy it is to grow a cacti or a succulent? I mean, they're, they're great plants to actually get involved in because they come from um, arid environments, so they actually have storage organs that actually store water. So for South Australia, with very hot, dry conditions, they're a great plant to get involved in, and they're quite actually, they're an easy plant to, to propagate and to grow, and you can actually use them outside, you can actually use them in an indoors situation as well in a nice well-lit place and because they don't have high water requirements they're actually a, a great plant to be involved with they're extremely rewarding they have so many different flower colors and and leaf colors and um yeah i mean you, even you think like the aloe vera all that um material inside that aloe vera that's a succulent so they're they're really quite an incredible plant to be involved in and the cactus um are really an interesting group of plants because you've got this this plant that actually doesn't have any leaves but they have these massive flowers and yeah and sometimes only open for one night at night time and yeah they're a really interesting group of plants and great to be involved with. House plants are very trendy at the moment and you can get a bit of a discussion saying uh, cacti are they house plants or should they be kept outside and only just brought in for a little while? I think when you classify the cacti and the succulents I think the cacti are more of an outdoor plant but you probably can bring them inside for short periods. The succulents lend themselves to be very good indoor plants, but there's no reason that you can't bring them inside. They're, they really need to be in a well-lit room, though. If you compare them to other indoor plants where, you know, they can go into dark rooms, you wouldn't normally be putting a succulent or a cacti into a dark part of the house. But in a well-lit room, so like a sunroom or something like that, that would be excellent. If you go into your garden centre at the moment, you'll see spectacular colour and it's been there uh, through late winter and it'll continue there through into well into springtime and I'm talking about Calancho mm -hmm. or Calanchoes. Mm -hmm. Do you, you, you a Calancho or Calanchoe? I'm a I'm a Kalankoe. Uh, Kalankoe, okay. <laughs> Third another one, way one. doing it. <laughs> uh, well, there we are. We yeah, had yeah. it from Matt. Uh, but okay, uh, it's just. I'm impressed with it because people in courtyards that are shady want colour. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me this fills a little niche that what can you have in your courtyard garden in mm -hmm. that late winter, early spring period when there's not too much colour out there? And there's one called Kalanchoe Queen. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how, how 
complicated. Let, 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 let's see. You buy one. Yes. How easy is it to, to grow lots more of them? <laughs> They're quite easy. So there's two types of methods that you can do to propagate. You can do your normal stem cutting if you've got a, if you've got a big piece, but also you can take one leaf and make a new plant. And that's what we've done with the amorphophallus. So there's a technique called leaf cuttings. And you can make a new plant just from one leaf, which is, always amazes me how you can do that. But yeah, they're actually, they're an easier plant. You don't need um, humidity control or special requirements. They're quite an easy plant to propagate. So they're a really good one to be involved in if you actually haven't done a lot of propagation before. But it depends on how much material you've got and how many plants you want to make. So if you've only got like a few leaves, you can actually make quite a few plants. Okay, but well, I mean, last year I bought one, uh, $15, and I then, when it finished flowering, pulled it apart, and so I used the stalks mm -hmm. when I could have had the, kept the plant as, as a, a big plant, but taken off the leaves. Just explain, what leaves do you take and how do you get them to grow? So generally, the, the stem cutting is still going to be your quicker cutting, so the, the method that you did, but if you've got just a few leaves and you don't actually don't have a stem, you can actually just pull a mature leaf off with the PTO and you can put that into your propagation media and where the where you have the PTO rather, just rather than just roots forming actually shoots form at the same junction so this is with leaf cuttings some plants will just form roots and no shoot but if you can get a plant that actually can form a shoot and a root at the same junction that's how you can get a successful cutting and that leaf is just there for the new shoots to come and after a while that old leaf will fall off and then you've got your new plant. Okay, so if you look at the plant, the outer leaves are the oldest ones and the, obviously the youngest leaves are mm -hmm. the inside. Would you take the old ones or young ones? Um, you go more to the young ones, so the young to medium. You don't want the, the leaf to be too old because you wanted some energy in that leaf to be able to produce the, the roots and the new shoot. All right. So, and, and, but you don't want it to be too small as well, so it's about in, about in the middle. Sure, and getting the media right, I guess, is pretty important. Yeah, what particularly do you grow them in? So, like, as we've discussed before, if the propagation media that we use, the 80% perlite to 20% koi is an excellent one for for the propagation of succulents and you can even use that media to actually grow your succulents in rather than a potting mix because succulents like to be dry um, but they need to, they need some water but they don't like much water to be held in the propagate in the potting media fascinating I think there'll be a lot of people going and buying a little uh, Kalanchoe, <laughs> Kalanchoe, was it? Yeah, yeah whatever. <laughs> uh, and seeing whether they can grow extras. Uh, yeah, they certainly make a magnificent display. They do. My big question for you, Matt Coulter, is you've got this fantastic display this year for the Botanic Gardens. Are you going to be back in future Royal Adelaide shows? Yes, definitely. Something that we really interested in. So even though we haven't been having our displays, we actually our trainees have been involved in the show right through. They put um, um, exhibits into the flower cut, so that's what has been happening. And definitely we'd like, we have 10 trainees through the whole stage, so we definitely would like to have some more involvement with the show. Um, I think it's just a, it's a great mix to be able to have the botanic garden. We've got three different botanic gardens, a whole range of different yeah. plant material. You know, I think it would be a great thing that we can keep being involved with the show, definitely. I think so, and I think a lot of people would like to learn more about the botanic gardens that we have. Absolutely, so and there's a new, a new director, so if you're listening, Mr Director, uh, <laughs> we, we'll want a, we, we want you here at the show next year. <laughs> and it's been great that we can be involved this year. It's been really exciting for us work, that work for the botanic gardens actually be involved in the show, but it's on a personal level to actually be able to show the plant that I've been involved 
in development over the last 15 years to show to the public has been extremely rewarding. Yes, and it's well deserved, Matt. Well, we love talking to you and I love it when you join us about propagation on Talkback Gardening. So it's so great to have you here live at the Royal Adelaide Show. Big round of applause for Matt Coulter, who is uh, from the... Uh, Adelaide Botanic Gardens and joins us very regularly. Now, Chris from Mount Barker, I think you might have a little bit of a relationship to Brett Draper. Oh, yes, Deb, we do, actually. I'm Brett's mum. You're Brett's mum. So how do you feel about losing out to Brett in the carrot cake competition? Uh, you know, Deb, we have so much fun at home, whether it's in the kitchen competing or outside in the garden and we don't always agree on everything but we have a lot of fun so uh -huh. not a problem I'm very proud that he's actually won the grand champion yeah. could, you, could you tell the truth you actually made both cakes and put no. his name on one no not at all <laughs> not at all in fact I think I practiced about two more than what he did so um, and good on him he's well deserved, well he's, deserved. he's quite incredible he has yeah. a go at uh, a daffodils one year and uh, he wins there and he yeah, puts his jellies in and he's uh, <laughs> uh, he and Walter Duncan of course have spied off on, on their uh, tomato sauce that's right yeah. yes uh, yeah. uh, well, We'll speak, to, we'll speak to Walter before the program's out. But, Chris, what question would you like to ask of John this morning? OK, so living up in the Adelaide Hills where we're still getting pretty cold nights and pretty cold mornings, and only in the last week we've had a couple of light frost and obviously a fair bit of rain in the last couple of days as well. So my question is, when do you think will be the best time for me to put my first tomato plants in? Now, I'm, I'm still digging the garden. I don't have a raised garden bed. And through the winter months, we, I've actually um, put my um, leaves back on top of where I grew them last year. So I've just turned that over before the latest rains. But when do you think it's going to be the appropriate time to plant? The quick answer is I suspect it'll be probably the first week in October. But I need to qualify that. I was thinking, and I think a lot of gardeners were saying, the season is very late. It's been so cold and miserable during winter mm -hmm. that uh, the season, uh, from a planting point of view, has been uh, well behind time. And to me, the thing that determines when to plant your tomatoes and other warm season vegetables are soil temperatures. Right. Now, soil temperatures have been sitting around about 11 or 12, mm -hmm. and they've got to get up to 16. Right. And I'd calculated it'll be the middle of October before they get to 16. Right. But last week, Darren Ray, independent climatologist, said stand by the last week in September and first week in October could be much warmer than normal. Right. And he was saying that uh, it, we, where it was going to be late, he's saying that maybe it will be on time. Right. And so if it's on time, it's basically the weekend after the footy finals. OK, right. Well, that's good because my team hopefully will be in the grand final. <laughs> Who's that? Geelong. Oh, OK, well, it's a good um, way to market, isn't it? It is. OK, so Mike, can I just follow on with another quick question on that? Please do. Um, so companion planting with the tomatoes, um, once I put the actual tomato plants in, do I companion plant at the same time or do I hang off a little while before I underplant them with some companion plants? Well, it depends on why do you want them as a companion plant. Are they there just to look nice or are they there to okay. ward off uh, oh. uh, gremlins? Right. So I guess what I'm talking about is uh, basil. I always try and put a bit of basil in because I use a lot of basil when I'm cooking as well. 
Um, and so that's fairly important for me yeah. as well. I think it's important to get the plant that you want to grow and eat or produce edible fruits and uh, okay. things like that. So get them well and truly established. Yep. And in particular, if you're basil, I'd be holding off until at least the end of October, early November. Brilliant. It's a warm, loving plant yes. and doesn't particularly like being put in the ground. And in fact, if you did put basil in the ground now, you'll find it just uh, deliquesces, it disappears. Yeah. Yeah. Um, whereas uh, if you wait until the ground is warm, it will take off and keep on growing. Uh, could we just go back to the tomatoes just for sure. a moment? Um, a lot of people are like yourself are saying, when do I plant my first tomatoes? And for those that can't wait, including me, <laughs> you buy your tomatoes, pick out just one or two in, in nice little containers and you yeah. find that they're a nice uh, seedling but they're well established yes. in little uh, six centimetre wide containers. Mm -hmm. Buy those and take them home, repot them into good quality potting mix uh, into maybe something that's uh, 15 centimetres across, okay. um, which is you know, a nice wide one. Yep. It allows the root system to grow, and then you've got to keep it warm. Uh -huh. And you can either put it on the windowsill or on the kitchen if it's a nice sunny windowsill, or uh, a lot of people just get a, a cordial bottle and, and take the top and the bottom off and use that as a little mini greenhouse. Okay. But um, And some people actually buy a little heated mat and mm -hmm. put their little seedlings on that. <laughs> and I found very, very effective buying the uh, uh, plastic uh, uh, storage containers, clear plastic uh, containers, and you put four or five pot plants in that, and you have those, uh, uh, put the lid on it, and put it where it's nice and sunny, mm -hmm. and you've got to remember, if it's a sunny, it, the sun comes out, take the lid off, otherwise you get very hot very, very quickly. Of course. And oh, at, at night time yep. with your frost, I would be putting a blanket over it as well, because you'll find that uh, if it's frosty outside, it'll be in, frosty inside your little plastic sure. container as well. Right. Good advice. Thank you. Thanks, Thank Chris. You. So lovely to meet you. you lovely to have you along. And it's always good to meet a young gardener. Alexander, you are from Blackwood. How old are you? Uh, seven. 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 And you like getting your, your hands dirty in the garden? Yeah. Oh, that's lovely to hear. Now, what question would you like to ask John? Um, we've got some clivia and they're in pots, but they're not flowering. Well, how long have they been in the pot? Do you know? Three years, I think. Right. I reckon, could you take them out of the pots and put them somewhere in the garden? Have you got room in the garden to put them somewhere? Yeah. Well, I think they'd be happier in the garden. The trouble is when you've got a plant like that, a clivia, and they have great big leaves on them, don't they? And uh, they have lots of leaves, and that means that they've got to have lots of roots to grow the leaves. And what happens is they run out of room in the container to grow. And so because they're not very happy in the container, they're not flowering. And I think it would be better, you could either put them, get mum to get you a bigger container, one that's say 30 or 40 centimetres wide, so, uh, and you could put it in there and it would grow and be happy, or else you could put it into the garden and you've got to find somewhere where it's nice and shady because they... They're, they're really big pots and they are in the shade next to the fence. Are they really? Wow. Well, <laughs> oh, I hate those kind of people that know, <laughs> come in with those. No, I don't. I'm, I'm being joking. Listen, um, what I think you need to do is buy a good quality fertiliser, a liquid fertiliser, 
And do, uh, is your mum organic or does she doesn't really mind? I think if you buy a fertiliser that's specific for flowers, and one that's for flowers has lots of potash in it, and flowers, uh, plants like potash. So I reckon if you start putting on fertiliser and follow the directions on the container and put some on straight away, and then once a month, while it's growing, give it another half a strength. Just work out the half strength, not the full strength. And see what happens. Okay. Well Lovely. done. Thanks, Alexander. Thank Lovely to have you along. Grab your prize pack, please. On site here, we've got Barry from Westbourne Park. Barry, you are wanting to raise the dreaded elm leaf beetle. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, the annual question, I guess. We have a, uh, an elm tree in our backyard, beautiful tree, uh, and uh, we've been fairly lucky the last couple of years with elm leaves. They, I mean, the, the beetles, we haven't had them, but uh, last year I noticed they're just starting to, uh, to come again. I think it was about three years since we had them, the tree injected. Uh, really the question is, uh, the sap's starting, starting to flow now, uh, can we get the tree injected now or should we wait until the leaves form or the blossoms form, does it matter? Oh, it does matter and right now is your best time because oh, okay. if you put the, or I presume you're not going to inject it yourself, you'll use an arborist to do that? Yes, yes. That's good because uh, it's a tricky kind of a thing, you've got to get the chemical in the right place and uh, many people try and do it themselves and uh, it doesn't work uh, and I won't explain what goes wrong. And again, look, people often get the chemical and drench it into the soil and that's not good from a soil point of view. Okay. So the answer to your question is do it as soon as you possibly can. Um, can I ask you, do you know why they disappeared a couple of years ago? No, no idea. They, right. uh, um, whether they completely disappeared, I, I really don't know. But certainly the very first year, that's several years ago, the tree was just a mass of, yep. of shotgun pellets and all the leaves. That's right. We go back three years and you may remember during January we had a period where we had 40 degrees over a number of days. Ah. And what happens is the little caterpillars are out there on uh, the leaves and they are munching away and when you get 40 degrees the leaf gets so hot that they get cooked on their leaves and it absolutely decimated the populations of elm leaf beetle in Adelaide. The hills is a little different there, it's a little bit cooler up there, they still had a major problem. But what happened was the next year hardly anybody had an elm leaf beetle problem. A few there, they started to grow up and it's now three years after that event and they're now starting to go, go back to a normal con uh, population. So I'd be suggesting to anybody else that's got elm leaf beetles, go and look Let's see what's happened. And if you can see that there are lots of uh, uh, beetles coming in, they fly in and they lay their eggs and out come the little uh, uh, caterpillar type uh, critters. And if you see those, I would be suggesting uh, either talk to an arborist. Mm -hmm. And probably the most important thing is have your tree in good heart. Trees which are under stress are more likely to be affected than those that are nice and healthy. So give them uh, some fertiliser, mulch them, water them regularly during summer and maybe you don't have to use an arborist. Thank you very much, Barry. Yeah, Appreciate thank you. that. you explained that well. Thank you. <laughs> uh, thanks, John. We'd better go to Andrea from Manopara West who's been patiently holding oh. on the line. Now, Andrea, you want to plant a bare-rooted dwarf cherry or you've already done so? 
We did that last year, and we, I'm just not sure how to care for it. It's in a pot, a big pot. Oh, when you say a big pot, a big pot means a lot to oh. different people. How, how big? <laughs> okay. Um, oh, probably about um, a half a metre across. Half a wine barrel? Or maybe, yeah, yeah. It? Oh, it, maybe just a little bit smaller than a wine barrel, but yeah. Okay. No, no, well, that's 60 or 70 yeah. litres of uh, material yeah. that can grow in. So that yeah. should be okay for it. Uh, you planted it as a bare-rooted, and has it put on much growth? It has this year, yes. It's, okay. um, it's, it's shooting now and I'm just not sure when to feed it or, or pruning and all that sort of thing after it's... Well, um, well, plants in containers, it's very easy to get it wrong and the easiest way to get it right is to use a slow-release fertiliser. All the nutrients are there mixed up in the right amount and they are released in the, in, so that you don't get too much too quickly. And so I'd be putting on a slow-release fertiliser now, one that lasts for about three or four months, and then early August, uh, sorry, early autumn, I'd put on another application, very early in autumn. And that autumn application is just as important as the spring one. So uh, that's all you need to do from a nutrition point of view. Um, Make sure the drainage hole in the container is effective. A lot of people, are, are, their leaves are, are going yellow and they wonder why, and it's because uh, the big containers only have small holes in them. It's stupid. Um, and, and they get gunked up with material and, and the potting mix gets all wet at the bottom and so you get root rots on the plants and they don't thrive. So make sure you've got good drainage coming out the bottom and then it's a matter of, uh, I would be uh, during uh, probably early November, mulching the area so you keep the root... Uh, system as cool as possible and uh, then work out this, this, how often you need to water it and ju just don't, don't over water it but keep the soil moist. That's all you need to do. Oh good, okay. And what about pruning it um, after it's, um, well, I don't even know if we're, when we're going to get um, fruit or whether it will be the first year or the second year or, or whether we'll get fruit at all. Um, righto, well um, you'll find that it's flowering at the moment? It's starting to, yes. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's only his first year, so I'd leave on one or two fruits just so okay. you, can, you can taste them and you know what they're going to be like. But don't have yeah. a, a if, if a lot of fruits stay on the tree, pull most of them off, 80% off. Okay. Um, and right. just yeah. leave a few. And then next year, probably you could leave quite a reasonable crop. And after that, I reckon go for it. Thanks I very can. much, Andrea. Appreciate the call. Look, we've got a couple of very special guests coming up here on the uh, ABC stage in the Jubilee Pavilion at the Royal Adelaide Show. Um, one of them is with us right now. I think last time we spoke to you at the Royal Show, Tate Hancocks, you'd won the 2019 new display for your wonderful tools. Is that correct? Uh, it was most outstanding exhibit. Most outstanding exhibit. Wonderful. It certainly was outstanding too. All these old tools which you had collected and some of them are quite amazing. Yeah, yeah. I have over 200 pairs of secateurs and then more loppers and um, hedge shears from around the globe. You've just finished your thesis for a PhD, I do believe. I have. July the 17th I submitted, and that was on uh, leptospermum for bioactive honey production. Oh, that sounds most fascinating. Why? <laughs> Why? Sorry. <laughs> the Lurgy strikes again. <laughs> so, keep going. Uh, so, uh, at the moment we're having issues around the world with antibiotic-resistant bacteria, and 
uh, leptospermum, some species have the capacity to produce honey that can treat antibiotic-resistant bacteria as well as just the general bacteria. It's a topical application um, in general, so that's wounds, bed sores, um, cuts, those sorts of things. Yeah, it's a wonderful idea, and I would like to think that you'll be very successful and before, before long we'll be calling you Dr Hancock. Yes. And, I, and I believe your aspiration is to become a researcher over in Kew in it is. London. It is. Yeah. I would really like to be able to do, conduct research, especially on propagation and seed saving and seed conservation. Yeah. If I had my time again, I'd like to be a research, officer, research scientist as well, but I uh, don't think that's going to happen anymore. Listen, let's get down to uh, tools, and um, in particular secateurs. Beginning of winter, we had a lot of people ringing up, and they were complaining about their secateurs. Uh, they just weren't... Uh, they were... They wouldn't prune properly. Uh, they were, uh, made the hands sore. Uh, lot, they went rusty. Um, so let's take a look at secateurs. Um, is it right to say that if you buy decent pay enough for your secateurs, you don't have problems? Is there a correlation between price and quality? Yes, there's a definite correlation between price and quality and there's also a correlation between care and quality. So looking after your tools improves the quality. Ah, so maybe somebody's bought their secateurs and hasn't looked after them, get them out next year. And so what are the things that go wrong that might make the, the secateurs not work? So uh, the main things that I have issues with is um, busting the um, cast aluminium in cheap pairs uh, snapping handles in cheap plastic pairs. Um, if you cut things that are above the manufacturer's specification, you can cause a bend and then the blade and the counter blade don't meet anymore. And that's when you start to get cuts that have tags and crushing areas that are really quite severe. Yes, and I'm sure that's what a lot of people do. They've got a great big piece of stem and they sort of try and force it and, and it bends uh, the, and you get a gap in between the two uh, uh, blades. Um, so the spring itself, how important is, is uh, what's the role of the spring and, and, and what, do you need a, a strong spring or the one that's not too strong? Well, it depends on what you're, you're cutting. So for things and how often you cut. So for things that are, are lighter and thinner, you might want a softer spring because then um, it's not so much effort on your hands because the, the more force it puts on your hands, the more force you have to put on it to close the blade. Yeah. For um, general pruning, uh, something that's got a bit more... Uh, Strength in it is good. Uh, it allows the it to open, especially when you get cutting things that are a bit thicker. Okay. If you pay enough, you can get uh, where the two blades are held together. There's a little screw, and that's adjustable. How important is it to have a, an adjustable system there? I really like adjustable um, nuts with the cog on the outside, especially when they have the little tool that you can lock that nut in. It just allows you to create the tension and hold the tension. And the other factor which you highlighted uh, when in my discussions with you yesterday is the importance of cleaning and, and, and uh, keeping the blade sharp. Why? Oh, I mean, there's obviously why, but uh, how do you do that? So I employ people to get pairs that you can pull apart completely, whether that's just into the two pieces or individually removing blades from handles. It allows you to be able to get in and clean out all the, the gunk, whether that's um, sap, dirt, um, 
insect guts, <laughs> all those things that build up. They'll stick there, yeah. Um, I use uh, gumption or some wet and dry sandpaper uh, to clean the blades and all the extra little bits. Um, and then use a, a diamond file to maintain the edge of the bevel. And, and that's at about 23 degrees. And then on the other side, which is just a plain flat side, you take it off at about 5 degrees just to remove any burrs. All right. Does uh, sharpening a seconder, a pair of seconders, make a, a significant difference? It makes a significant difference for sure. So I usually sharpen before every pruning session. How much did you pay for your pair of secateurs, your favourite pair of secateurs? So the pair of secateurs I've been using for five or six years now, I paid $70 for. And that's what you need to pay for a reasonable... Or There, there are secateurs available, say, in the 40 to $50 range. Uh, will you get quality there? Yeah. So for, for the home gardener, the 40 to $50 range is perfect. If you've got a moderate amount of anything that you're going to prune, if you've got lots of roses and fruit trees, then it might be worth looking at something that's a bit more professional grade. You collect old tools, uh, all kinds of old tools. Is it worth um, getting grandpa's uh, going to grandpa's shed and, and sort of find his old tools and, and look after them or would you be better to go and get a new pair? Um, for everything but secateurs that is perfect. For secateurs it's much better to get a new pair. Um, the engineering and the ergonomics is far better these days and you're less likely to get RSI because some of those old pairs were quite heavy and clumsy to use. Mm. Well Tate Hancocks, all I can say is congratulations on it's submitting your PhD. I hope next time we meet it's Dr Hancocks. Uh, congratulations, thanks very much for coming along and talking to us here. Lovely to see you back at the Royal Adelaide Show. Thanks for having me. How about a round of applause for Tate? Now, we've got a couple of quick questions before we meet the living show legend that is Walter Duncan. Edward, from Paynham, what's your sick plant? I've... Do I need no. a microphone? No, I've, just... Yep. OK, I've got a, this is my office plant and it just continuously goes brown on its tips no matter how well I look after it. Yes, what we're looking at is a peace lily. Yes. And uh, nearly most people have got leek peace lilies and uh, the, the same thing happens that the ends go all brown Constantly. and I need to ask a couple of questions do you have them in uh, an air-conditioned room or not no the kitchen's not air-conditioned I don't because that could be one of the major issues you get the, uh, the air conditioners on and they're trying to suck up moisture faster than the roots will allow uh, to deliver and it goes all brown to the end so if you and if you do, do have uh, air conditioning on with a piece of lily mist it down with a little bottle of water uh, once in the morning makes a significant difference but in your situation I would put my money on it being overwatered. Uh, they are super sensitive to overwatering. Could that be the problem? Yeah, there's a few helpers in the office who think it does, <laughs> it's not getting enough water. So oh, yeah. okay, it looks like one. There's one yeah. like that in the ABC, but yeah. uh, Peter Gers looks after it. And, oh, uh, God, help <laughs> <us>. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, actually, it's in, in good condition at the moment. Probably better condition than Peter is, but <laughs> uh, okay. So I think you need to watch the watering. As they get older, they have a massive root system. It may be you need to have it repotted 
because you'll find that there's lots of roots there and they can't get enough nutrient and in particular water so they go from too wet to too dry um, and it's probably you see them and it starts to wilt so you think it needs a drink of water um, and it's just simply because there's not enough root system sucking up moisture so what's the watering repotting I think would overcome your problem so I'll take it home and bring plastic ones into the office <laughs> oh, don't, you don't have to do that, Edward, but thank you very much uh, thank you. for no. your prize pack there. Look, we're going to take one quick question because Mark from Port Neal has been hanging on for so long. Mark, just a succinct question. You've got a, a compost tumbler. It gets full of maggots and attracts blowflies. John. Yeah, yeah. So what are you putting into your compost? I oh, just um, veggies and stuff from out of the kitchen. It sounds like you've got the material too wet you'll find that uh, maggots need a fair amount of moisture to be able to survive. If you uh, could add probably more drier material, uh, do you have any prunings and things like that you can put into it? Like glass, grass clippings and that sort of stuff? Uh, grass probably is the other way around. So if you get fresh grass clippings, um, you'll find that uh, that will make it even more uh, soggy. On the other oh, hand, okay. if, if, you, if you had the uh, clippings and they were dried, that would be different altogether, and that gives you the organic matter you want uh, without the moisture. Um, so uh, dried leaves, you know, there were leaves that fell in autumn, they would have been absolutely ideal, so maybe uh, go and have a look underneath the tree, uh, any trees and gather any things that are completely uh, uh, no green in them at all and use that. But if you can increase the amount of, uh, of dry matter into there, I think you'll find that that problem uh, will disappear. Um, exclusion to some form of netting so that you don't have the flies coming in laying maggots, maggots uh, I think probably would also help. Mark, thank you very much for calling in. We have got a show legend on the stage, Walter Duncan. Welcome to the stage. <laughs> uh, one of the joys of coming to the show, of course, is, is meeting the personalities, and some of them are real characters. And then there are those that are living legends. And uh, Walter Duncan, you are actually, you've been classified as a living, gent uh, living legend, whereas I've been classified as a Methuselah. <laughs> well, I think we could combine it, John. <laughs> We've still got a bit of spring in our steps, Walt. An unbelievable spring. <laughs> Deb sort of indicating no, no. that uh, we're doing something wrong. No, 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 ignore me, ignore me. <laughs> we haven't done anything wrong yet. No. <laughs> That's all right. Now, when Be Deb sort of looks at me sometimes, I know I've done something no, wrong. John, I'm, I, no, I'm just getting a photo of Walter, so <laughs> off you go. Listen, um, talking of Duncans, Duncans have been involved with the show as long as I can remember, and that's going back quite a few years. And uh, Brett Draper took me into the president's uh, room, and, 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 and in there, there's a glass a casement, and inside that, there's this great big trophy. And Brett said, that's the Duncan trophy. And it came from the Duncan family. Just very, very briefly, just uh, where did it come from and why? John, it's a bit before me. I think it would have been before the Depression in 1930. And then I guess that one of my great-uncles or grandfather, they had it there. And in time, the trophy outlived the owner. 
<laughs> and they've got to find out somewhere to put it. But the Duncans have been involved with the show society, haven't long they, for time. many, many uh, years? Well, in, in my time, my grandfather was the president, Dad was the president, my brother was the president, and I was doing the work. I was doing the... <laughs> 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 and telling him what to do, you know. You've got to be in it somehow. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that... This is the Royal Adelaide and Horticultural, underline Horticultural show. I'm is glad you've got the Horticultural. Yes, well, I've been reminded by horticulturalists, certainly living legends. Yeah. Don't forget, it's the Horticulture show as well as the Agricultural yeah, show. Exactly. Having, having uh, got you happy on that one, yeah. <laughs> tell us about uh, why is it a Royal show? I'm blessed if I know, John. I think it was to do with the RNHS in England and it would have been an, 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 an association with that. And when you became associated, it became the Royal Adelaide Show. Yes. Have you come across the Queen, or did you? Not in this particular case. No, OK. I, I've stumbled onto her once at Herbray, but that, she, she didn't like very much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. So... Um, the show itself has changed considerably over many years, um, and there are people like yourself, but they're coming. There's fewer of people like yourself and myself. <laughs> We're lucky, John. <laughs> <laughs> We're being outnumbered by younger, which is tremendous. And, and one wonders: um, are they, is, is the show and the displays here in good hands? Well, I think it is, John. It, it takes a bit of holding. I found that when I was exhibiting, I was putting up six or seven in, entries in, in, a, in, a, in a show, and that, I think, has got a little bit thinner because it's a lot of work to do it. But the, the show itself is going ahead very, very well. Where are you drawing people from? Anyone who's stupid enough to do it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, I, I remember exhibiting once and I was so downed hungry and hadn't had anything to eat and you just had to keep going. And it was, I think it was over here in the hall here. We had a few exhibits that day and it was pretty good. And there were these two people, they're both dead now so we can speak freely about them. But I've never seen... Now, dear, from, from a uniform point of view, to be so uninviting when it was a sort of a smock with buttons down the front and they didn't quite meet at the middle. You know? <laughs> yes, I know what you mean. <laughs> no, you're all right, dear. <laughs> <laughs> no buttons, that's why. <laughs> but there have been some characters and others that were... I don't think I've ever struck any people, any, any person or people that have been involved with horticulture that have been in any way vindictive or nasty. I'd like to just put a serious question to you. It worries me that uh, the garden clubs, one by one, mm. are closing down, yet at the same time we're getting community gardens opening up. Mm. Um, is there a role for the, the society to get involved with the uh, community gardens and, and, and maybe sort of as the... the uh, garden clubs, I won't say they close, I think they're changing and they're, they're, they're social uh, uh, media I think is probably playing a major role there but um, is there a role for the, the Royal and, and the community gardens? If I was still on the committee John there definitely would be a role for it. <laughs> well you can speak but, freely now. Oh I can, there should be a role for it because it's something that 
has to be carried forward. Before we leave, I would like to just talk a little bit about a book. And it's called, in, in front of Deb at the moment, uh, The Heritage Garden. And, and it's basically the life of Walter Duncan. And, and I don't think many people would realise that you have played a major role in the development of the rose growing industry and, and uh, uh, is still very much involved. Yes, it, I've had a long association with it, John. <coughs> and really, I think that was simply because my mother took me down with a broken arm to learn how to prune. She said, you can't do anything more around the house, <coughs> but you can prune with your right hand and pull out with your left. Well, I learned the plasters from here to there. And then I got quite used to doing that. And then she was a very astute woman. She gave me a, a, a membership to the Rose Society for my birthday. Wow. And as my birthday is three days before Christmas, if everyone wants to contribute, <laughs> um, it, it caught on. And then they saw me coming. I'd only just passed leaving on as English, so they got me to write the bulletin for them. It folks are hardly damn all right, you know. But, but you actually uh, set up uh, the growing, the propagation of roses, and you simplified the propagation of roses, yes. uh, the budding in particular. Yes. Well, I, I got fairly good at that, John. Uh, and I had an, you have to have a bit of luck in something like this. Budding's fairly c continuous. And we were budding around about 400 a year. And I went to a children's party. And believe it or not, you know, we, all the girls were talking to themselves, but not to me. And all of a sudden, there were two girls there that weren't in the scheme. And I thought, well, what's going on here? And I said, well, what do you girls do? And they said, oh, we, no good telling you. And I said, what do you do? And they said, we tie rosebuds in for a rosebudder. I said, could you start Monday? <laughs> <laughs> Those chance that meetings, it. isn't that incredible? Yeah. And that de developed into bringing others in, and our, our supply went from like a couple of hundred to 10,000. Okay. Just referring to the book, The Heritage Garden, it's a lovely book. It's beautiful pictures in it, and it is uh, a, a lovely history of uh, rose growing in South Australia and a lot of South Australia's history is there well, as well. John, we've got to thank Kay for that because she was on my wheel all the time to get the book done oh. and, and it turned out pretty well. Well, that's just as well you did. It's a lovely book. The Heritage Garden, Creating Walter and Kay Duncan's Garden, Seven Hill in South Australia. And you do have that open, um, yes. is it once but, a year? Yes, and it's the first, I think, it, when is it, Kay? First of November. 1st of November, yeah, so do remind us about yeah. that as well. Don't worry, there are It's the 6th of November, oh, so Kay is here with all the information. It is the most superb garden if you haven't been to see it, but you certainly can get hold of the book, The Heritage Garden. Deb, they could have been waiting for a few days, weeding. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Always something to do in a rose garden oh, of that yes. size. Well, look, we're, we're almost out of time, but Walter Duncan, you are a living legend. Uh, it's so glad that you have been recognised formally Thank as you. that. It's so lovely to see you here in the flesh again at the Royal Adelaide Show. Isn't it wonderful, John? It's just a delight to be here, Deb, seeing so many old people and young people as well. And the future of uh, our horticultural industry is very much in the younger people's hands. It sure is. And I think we're just about out of time. Let's thank Walter. Well, there we are. Another show 
from our point of view, has come and is almost gone. You've got a little bit more to do, but I'll say until next week, good gardening.